Hello and welcome to Stump Death in Taxes. Today I'm talking about spreadsheet shenanigans, and no, it's not about fraud. And hello, my fellow actuaries. And by the way, I'm Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell, a life actuary. And this is potentially some continuing education credits for my fellow American actuaries, because we self-report our continuing ed credits. Get your timers out. I will be referencing ASOP 23, data quality, and ASOP 56, modeling, and potentially even ASOP 41, actuarial communications. If you happen to be an actuary from another country, I don't know your continuing education standards. I am not registering this with anything, but if you know about Americans, yeehaw! We're all about freedom and also self-responsibility, and we have to record uh, our own CE credits. And someone was someone, I'm sorry, Calvin Baker, I'm going to drop your name, um, left a comment, you know, can I uh, record CE credits from one of my recent posts, where I was uh, doing some modeling critique on Nate Silver, but also providing my steps of going through building a model, a regression model and evaluating how good the model was. And he's like, could I record CE credits? And I said, well, the standard is, well, did you learn something? And of course, is it actuarial? And this will be actuarial. However, please don't go. Um, it's not solely actuarial because the examples I'm going to give first is going to be from genomics, but the second is going to be from an insurance example. It's going to be from GE Financial and the issue with a block of long-term care insurance. Some people may already know what I'm talking about, and it refers to an SOA podcast. I'm going to see if I can grab some of the audio from that podcast. I might not be able to technically. And by the way, guys, it will just be a short snippet. So fair use, copyright, etc, etc. Um, but I also don't think these are freely uh, given and I'm going to give context as well. Um, and I think they would be happy uh, with this use because what this is about, it's not really about the spreadsheets. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, it is about operational risk. It's about good standards in handling data and in models. Um, so I'm not going to drop the technical stuff on your head immediately. And you don't have to be an actuary to value good data, data, uh, good data handling and good modeling practices. This is open to everybody. It doesn't actually require really deep technical knowledge for a lot of this stuff. And I'm going to start with the genomics example. This is something that's been going on for a long time, by the way. I've given presentations on this, like back in 2016. Um, I'm a member of the European Spreadsheet Risks Interest Group and have been for many years. I gave a presentation at their 2010 meeting and let me look it up. It was titled A Practitioner's Tale. I got 99 problems in a spreadsheet 8-1. Um, and because a lot of the people, of course, given the name, it's mostly Europeans, but there's it's a mix of academics and people who kind of work in the field, consultants, people who work at regulators in uh, Europe. There are a smattering of Americans, um, but they tend, again, tend to be academics where we're looking at best practices in spreadsheet use. And you may be wondering, well, where's the American version of this group? Well, it just doesn't seem to get off the ground. And uh, you know what? I don't even need to go there. What this group, European Spreadsheet Risk Interest Group, there is an email list, but there's a website, eusprig.org. Okay, and there is a horror stories page. And of course, I'm going to provide all these links, including to my 2010, uh, the slides from the 2010 talk. There was no recording made, I don't believe. Um, in any case, uh, we keep kind of a database of the, these horror stories where uh, we link to news stories. And it tends to be news stories, by the way. So it's so bad that it makes the news. 
Uh, and I'm a frequent contributor to this, uh, and there's a few other people who are frequent contributors to things that make the news about a spreadsheet error. But we often, in our mailing list discussion group, uh, try to determine what really went wrong. In some of the cases, it was outright fraud. In some cases, it was, and, and it's almost never the spreadsheet's fault, of course. Uh, sometimes you could say it's user interface design in that people are likely to make certain kinds of errors in using spreadsheets. Um, so the most recent one that I see listed here is from 2022. Uh, police in Finland lose hacked therapy center criminal reports after spreadsheet errors. And uh, it looks like some things were not readable when they were imported into a spreadsheet. And I reported that one, I believe. I have, um, no, I'm sorry, that was Patrick O'Byrne. Um, but yeah, there's a, a variety of ones that we uh, report over time, and we try to just uh, memorialize, as it were, the ones that have the biggest impact, whether from a dollar standpoint or just from um, like election, because some of this was like election information. Some of it, a lot of it has been from criminal justice harms that uh, private information gets loosed into the public. Uh, there were things with regards to uh, COVID errors in terms of COVID files that were being imported into an old format, which limits the number of rows and columns that can be imported into the old format Excel file. And basically information was lost. Um, and again, this is all, it, it really is user or system error or how it was designed that people weren't checking. And there's something called data validation and there's different levels of data validation. And one of the simplest forms of data validation is making sure the number of records, pieces of information that you're putting in from your input sheet is what you're getting out. That is like the simplest form of data validation. And they didn't even do that uh, with COVID. In any case, that's enough ranting about that. Let's get to the more recent item. It's from September 20th from the Retraction Watch blog. It was a guest post by Mandri Abessoria. And I'm sorry, that's the best I can do. Um, and she wrote a post titled, Genomics Has a Spreadsheet Problem. Okay. So I'm just going to go to the part uh, where she starts writing about the spreadsheet problem. Gene name errors were discovered by Barry R. Zeberg and his team at the National Institutes of Health in 2004. Their study first showed that when genomic data is handled in Excel, the program automatically corrects gene names to dates. And I'll discuss that in a moment. What's more, Riken clone identifiers, unique name tags given to pieces of DNA, can be misinterpreted as numbers with decimal points. In 2016, we conducted a more extensive search showing that in more than 3,500 articles published between 2005 and 2015, 20% of Excel gene lists contained errors in their supplementary files. There are no documented cases in which gene name errors have affected the conclusions of a study. But if a researcher unknowingly saved a spreadsheet containing such errors, someone importing those data for further analysis would face a reproducibility problem. In response to these issues, the Hugo Gene Nomenclature Committee, HGNC, has made changes to some gene names prone to errors. This includes converting the SEPT1 gene, so that's S-E-P-T-1 gene to SEPTIN1, so S-E-P-T-I-N1, and the MARCH1 gene to MARCHF1. Okay, so you can see how that change would prevent uh, being misinterpreted as a date. The widespread adoption of these new names is a lengthy process. Our latest study of more than 11,000 articles published between 2014 and 2020 found that 31% of supplementary files that included gene lists in Excel contained errors. This percentage is higher than in our previous 2016 study. We also found some novel errors. Some were connected to the local language setting. For example, the AGO2 gene was 
converted to August 2nd, perhaps due to AGO being short for August in Spanish. Similarly, MEI1 was switched to May 1st. MEI, so May is May in Dutch, and TAMM41 to January 41. Okay, oh, January 1941. T-A-M-M-I-K-U-U is January in Finnish. Okay, so I'm not going to read the rest of the post. I'll link to it in the notes. But this has been long a problem with importing data in Excel, that it helpfully, when you import it like a CSV, it's a comma separated values file, and there's TSV tab separate value file, um, often will helpfully convert to the type of data that it thinks it is, whether it's a date or a number, but if it's not a date or a number, then it's a it's text. And those were basically the three types. It's actually either numerical or it's text or Boolean. Those are actually the three data types in Excel, though um, they have been with software as a service. It's not stable anymore. You can have further data types. But in old Excel, so when they first did it, like in 2016, there really were only three data types. It's either numeric and date is a numeric data type. And so I'm going to explain what happened to the data when it got converted and why you couldn't convert it back. So it's either numeric, it was Boolean, that's true or false, or it was, oh, I'm sorry, there's a fourth, error, or it's text. Okay, and error is actually a data type, um, but you're generally not importing errors. Um, man, I, okay, I don't want to go down the technical uh, rabbit hole. But so people would be importing like sept1, S-E-P-T-1, and they wanted it to go into the spreadsheet as text, as capital S, capital E, capital P, capital T1. What would happen is Excel would see that text string. It would say, okay, that's September 1st. And since there's no year there, it would be September 1st of the year that you're importing that file. That's the default interpretation. It switches it to that date, that day, and actually it would be midnight of that date. And then that gets transformed. Dates are stored as numbers, serial numbers. So if you um, actually change the format from a date formatting, it would, and you try to do it back to a string, it would actually be a numeral. <laughs> so this is problematic. You couldn't get back to SEPT1 as your gene. Um, and so that's one kind of problem. Actually, I've come across many types of problems. Um, so I mentioned this in the, in the comments on this post that uh, this has happened with me on CDC Wonder because I'm often doing, say, age groups, the five-year age groups, the 10-year age groups. One of the age groups is one to four years old. And there's two different columns from CDC Wonder. Now, one of them I'll use all the time, which is one dash four years, okay? With the, it's spelled out years. But then there is like an age group code, which is one dash four. Can you imagine what does in my default settings in Excel, it gets interpreted as January 4th. This year would be 2023. So if I imported it without doing some special steps, and I do do those special steps, by the way, anyone who um, downloads my spreadsheets now, but if you download some old spreadsheets when I was being lazy, you will see January 4th in those columns. I didn't use those columns for lookups. I used the 1-4 years column for the lookups. I still use the 1-4 years column for the lookups just in case somebody makes a boo-boo because there'll be a little green triangle in the upper left corner saying, oh, this looks like a number or a date that is saved as a text string. Would you like to convert? And if you convert, it will convert it to a date and you don't want to convert it. Um, and I did do a, a video of this very problem and then I linked to that. Another person uh, from the European Spreadsheet Risk Interest Group, Andy, uh, made a comment uh, September 20th, 2023 at 11.57 a.m., and I guess that's Eastern time, 
uh, wrote, any bioinformatician worth their salt would not use Excel for any stage during the analysis process. A lot of the tools used in this field are command line and use flat text files, which have none of these conversion issues, unless there are quotes or commas, but this can be worked around. I would suggest that the issue you refer to happens at the edges where bioinformatics meets the real world of journals, insisting that tables and data files are not uploaded as plain text, but formatted as spreadsheets, where Microsoft's default design choice of formatting anything that looks like a number as a number, a date as a date, etc., when importing plain text files comes into play. The analyses are unlikely to be incorrect, just the presentation of them. I'm sorry, that's not that's not the person I was thinking of. Andy is not uh, part of uh, EEU. SPRIG. But it's actually a good point that these journals should not require that the data files be uploaded in Excel. They should be uploaded as, say, CSV format, I think, or as text files, um, because those are universal. Um, Excel is no longer stable. We have the software as a service. You do not know what it's going to be in the in the future. I think text files, CSV, actually should be the format. It was Ed Cruz, I'm sorry, Ed Cruz, uh, September 21st, he is the person um, from the European Spreadsheet Risk Interest Group who had made uh, a point about data validation. And um, he talked about data validation and exception reporting, Excel template integration. He has his own uh, video. It's only a two minute video of the process of making a genomics Excel template. And that's actually a very good idea. But his point is you should get into the discipline of checking your data and doing data validation. And I totally agree with him. This is the issue in actuarial practice. We have this as part of our standards of practice. And here comes the professionalism. Get ready for your CE credits. Oh, and by the way, yeah, if you're listening to this at two times speed, uh, yeah, this is the problem, of course, with um, how we have to record our CE credits is that it's by time credits. Uh, and, you know, a lot of us listen to podcasts, I know I do, at like 1.5 times speed or two times speed. And, uh, so do we record it at what the length, time length speed of the original podcast was or whatever it was? Or, yeah, do we have to slow it down now? Ah. Well, you know, nothing is perfect. So, you know, just deal. So actuarial standards of practice. There's a whole set of them and there's a lot of them. And no, not all of them still exist. And there's a whole archive of them. So if you like sue an actuary for actuarial malpractice in that, yes, that is really a thing. Um, and no, it doesn't come up that often. So it's usually when you hear about actuarial malpractice lawsuits, it has to do when you hire, say, an actuary as a consultant. Uh, and it's been very specific cases. It's almost always been the case of, say, a pension plan and it's the uh, signing actuary and there is a problem. And it's not always a pension plan. Um, in any case, it doesn't matter. There have been actuarial malpractice lawsuits. It has gone to court. Usually it's settled out of court. And actuarial standards of practice almost always come into play with a specific set of facts. Um, and one of the big ones is ASOP 23. And you have to know which ASOP or which version of the actuarial standard of practice was in play at the time. So that's why the actuarial standards board keeps a whole history of what were all the ASOPs and when they were in effect, etc. So the most recent version of ASOP 23 was you know, it was, let's see, December 2016. That's when it was, quote, transmitted and its effective date was April 30th, 2017. So that's the one that's in effect right now. And this is binding on U.S. actuaries. So this is just for American actuaries. Most actuaries in that are credentialed and et cetera, et cetera, throughout the world and their particular countries have something similar to ASOPs. Um, 
And I don't need to go into that right now. So here's the beauty of Aesop's. There's specific ones in my top three Aesop's. Number one, Aesop 23, data quality, Aesop 56, modeling in Aesop 41, communication, actual communication. All three of them, except for some very specific details, can be used by non-actuaries in non-actuarial work. Uh, some of them are specific to actuarial work, but they're very high level and they give you some really good advice of things you should consider when you're doing serious work. I actually don't, and this is the thing that people don't understand most of the time, I actually don't do officially actuarial work in terms of I'm not setting reserves or signing off in reserves or, you know, doing all sorts of specifically actuarial work. However, I approach all my work, including the stuff on my blog as an actuary, and I follow these ASOPs. Okay. I don't, this is something about me. Actuaries don't have to do this. This is a me thing. This is a meep thing. This is a Mary Pat Campbell thing. This is the way I approach stuff. So ASOP 23 with regards to data quality, I, it has, and this is in a structure that most of the ASOPs take. You have all of your transmittal memo, you have effective date, but it starts out with definitions of different things. You know, what is data? What, what are data elements? What do we mean by review? So let me explain review, an examination of the obvious characteristics of data to determine if such data appear reasonable and consistent for purposes of the assignment, a review is not as detailed as an audit of data. So when we talk about ASOP 23, and this is true of all of the actuarial standards of practice, we're trying to maintain a balance. They're trying to be practical. These are to say, this is the level of what we expect actuaries to do their practice. You know, this is professionalism. And, but we're not going above board that you have to like really pick apart everything with tweezers or something like that. Okay. Um, this is intended to be reasonable. However, we do not want you to be sloppy. So uh, after you get your definitions, then you start getting into the meat of the ASOMP. And it's like, what are we trying to do? What is our goal? Um, and actually the goal is actually at the very beginning. That's section one, the purpose. The purpose of the actuarial standard of practice is to provide guidance to the actuary when performing actuarial services involving data. That's very broad. Basically, almost every actuarial service is going to involve some kind of data, uh, almost definitely. And then they have uh, scope, and I'm really not going to get into that because it gets, uh, it's like this ASOP provides guidance to actuaries when selecting data, data, performing a review of data, using data, or relying on data supplied by others in performing actuarial services. So like you can just strike the in performing actuarial services, uh, and then you can use it as a non-actuary for whatever you're doing. How do you decide how to select data? How do you decide how to review data? How to use data? How do you rely on data other people have given you? And most of us have to deal with data other people gave us. We usually are not generating it ourselves. Um, so how do we select data? So that's 3.2 of this ASOP. Uh, in undertaking an analysis, the actuary should determine what data to use. The actuary should take into account the scope of the assignment and the intended use of the analysis being performed to determine the nature of the data needed and the number of alternative data sets or data sources, if any, to be considered. Here are things to do. I mean, the data, the actuary should do the following, but these are things to do. So A is consider the data elements that are desired and possible alternative data elements. Uh, because there may be stuff that are given to you in your data set that you have, and it's not appropriate. So this is the exercise I did with, you know, uh, tearing apart whatever Nate Silver had done. It's like percent of the population that's over age 65. 
versus um, the COVID death rate for the entire population and the vaccination rate for the entire population. And I'm sitting here going like, what? I can actually get the COVID death rate for those over age 65 and the vaccination rate for those over 65. Why do I have to mess about with this other crap? This was ASOP 23 in action. I'm like, I'm looking at his original data. I'm like, this is crap. Why am I dealing with this? I'm going to go to the exact data I need. I had no issue with a simple, <laughs> I had no issue with a simple uh, model. Okay, so, but that's that one. Okay, so that's consider the data elements and then select the data for the analysis with consideration for the following. And then there's seven items, whether they're appropriate, are they sufficiently current? Um, are they reasonable? Are they consistent? So there's all sorts of things. And this is very high level. Um, a lot of us who have worked with data, especially in insurance, can get you into the details of things that you need to look for, to look for inconsistencies. What are some inconsistencies that you can check for, such as like if you're checking death files, well, was the death date actually after the birth date? I mean, we get some weird stuff because of, so if it's in Excel, for example, um, this was something that I did. I used to teach in Excel. Well, it was actually an actuarial computing course at the University of Connecticut. And one of the exercises I had, or one whole unit was about dealing with dates. The problem is Excel doesn't have, the way it encodes dates assumes dates begin. Ah, okay, so there's two different problems with dates in Excel. And we... It was, there was me, there was this other actuary. We used to send challenges to each other about dates because like the Macintosh date standard of how the serial dates were encoded was different from the Microsoft. And then it mattered whether it was like the pre-2007 or the pre-2016 and oh my God, it was a mess. And this was a problem of how you encode dates because if you just worked off of the serial number version and yeah i'm getting very geeky on this versus um just take the month the day and the year and when did the dates begin well in excel it begins like in 1899 or 1900 or 1901 and you're like what and yeah we had files where the people were born before 1899 how do you deal with that given that Excel doesn't recognize those as dates. And how do you figure out the number of days and how old were they and blah, blah, blah. And so I had assignments uh, based off of that because this is something we really had to deal with. Now, to be sure, in 2023, if you have current like living policyholders, very, okay, none of them were born before 1900 and you're not having to deal with this. However, some of us are dealing with historical data, and so you have birth dates before 1900, and you're going to have to deal with that. I mean, I'm really getting persnickety here, okay? But knowing how the system works and how there might be inconsistencies in the system, let's just go to the genomics. You know Excel has this problem in taking gene names and either changing them to numerals when they should be strings or changing them to dates when it should be strings. Okay, all of the stuff there should be strings. You should actually know what is the gene count? How many genes am I putting in from my original file? And then there are ways to count the numbers of numerals, the number of dates, the number of strings in cells. And you can see, are there problems with my data set? Because that's 3.3 review of data. What are the things that you should be reviewing for? Okay, so if the actuary performs a review, and it also says sometimes you can't perform a review. Okay, it's uh, if in the actuary's professional judgment, it's not appropriate to perform a review, blah, blah, blah. And you're supposed to communicate. This is where ASAP 41 comes in. So I'm not going to talk about ASAP 41 right now. So if the actuary performs a review, and maybe you can start seeing why actuaries are so expensive now, but if the actuary performs a review, the actuary should do the following. A, make a reasonable effort to determine the definition of each data element used in the analysis. Okay, this is a big problem. I've often seen that you get data and people misinterpret what they're seeing. And yes, there have been actuarial malpractice lawsuits based on this 3.3A, where someone was taking in information 
on a pension participant. I think it was pensions. It could be retiree health care. Okay. It doesn't matter really what it was, but I think it was, no, it had to be pension because, and I'll tell you why, because what was happening was that, um, the pension valuation was being based off of everybody being single, if I remember correctly. And there was one of the columns was an indicator that they were married. And can you imagine if there's a pension and the pensioner dies and there's a continuing pension benefit going to the widow or widower, do you see the problem here? And this is what the lawsuit was based on. There was a misvaluation that it was grossly undervalued because it pretended basically everybody in the plan was single versus there was a substantial percentage of the plan where they were married. And this was because they just totally missed a data element or just misinterpreted a data element. And this is fair, by the way, that there's a column and we often get these data files where there's basically meaningless columns for the purpose of our use for the valuation. They'll have stuff in there like the state they're living in now. Well, we don't care. Or the, you know, whether they own a dog. Okay, I'm just making that up. But stuff like that, we don't need for our actuarial purpose, so we just throw it out. But sometimes you might throw out some information that actually really has an impact on what you're trying to do. So you need to make sure you understand what you're looking at. And of course, I have had a lot of frustration with this with regards to say like CDC wonder data. Like I understand what I'm looking at in there, but I have seen a lot of people misinterpreting data coming out of that and coming out of other CDC data sources that were over interpreting. They thought it meant one thing when I know like, no, that's just a temporary code that will change when it finally gets finalized in like six months because this is the process. I know the process. I know what the data means. And I know you don't know what the data means. Okay. So that happens. But again, I know the people who are doing this are not actuaries because they don't have the discipline of knowing that they don't know what a, a piece of data means. And I'm dealing with this with another data set right now where I'm seeing anomalies in the data, but I also realize I actually don't know what that means. It might mean some bureaucratic change. Oh, here's one. Okay. This came up a lot in COVID and I've talked about this in videos and podcasts before, and this was within a lot of the COVID death trackers, especially in 2020, that people were tracking. They're like, oh my gosh, there's no COVID deaths on the weekend or a lot fewer COVID deaths on the weekend. And I'm looking at this and I'm looking at these trackers and I knew immediately what I was seeing, though it wasn't necessarily marked in these trackers. We weren't seeing when the COVID deaths actually were occurring. We were seeing when they were being reported because I'm so used to the distinction between when a death or a claim, an insurance claim, is reported versus when it occurs. And you get this kind of pattern all the time. So when you work with certain kinds of data a lot, you are used to certain kind of anomalies and you know what kind of process creates that anomaly. Um, and various trackers worked around the system rather than, and most of these data sets, by the way, actually in the original data feed did have information about when deaths occurred. They just didn't want to deal with it because of the uh, coding of their trackers. Um, if they dealt with, and this was one of the things I dealt with early on in 2020, there was a guy, and I think he was a graduate, a PhD student in Florida, actually took the Florida data feed and created his own trackers that was based off of when the COVID deaths occurred, not when they were reported. And he said, you can use my tracker. But a lot of them didn't like that because they didn't know how to report that. If there were 3,000 new COVID deaths reported, but they were over a two week period. Well, how were you supposed to report that if you were a media person? Well, I could give you a lot of different ways if you show me the graph. Cause I could like highlight the newly reported deaths in a graph 
like in yellow or something. And then you can say, with the 3,000 newly reported deaths, the peak of COVID deaths currently reported occurred one week ago, you know, whatever, whenever the peak occurred. And on that date, there was a total of you know, however many, say 5,000 COVID deaths reported. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could report that information and you could use a graph in addition to the words, okay? There are ways of dealing with this stuff. It's just, yeah, you have to think. <sighs> okay, tough. Okay, in any case, uh, part 3.3, review of data B, make a reasonable effort to identify data values that are questionable or relationships that are significantly inconsistent. You are supposed to at least be looking for bizarre data in your sets. You're not expected to do a thorough audit of your data from ASAP 23. But if there's something seriously weird in the data, again, like, oh, no one's dying on the weekends. No, what it means are the people responsible for reporting the deaths don't work on the weekends. That's what it means. I remember seeing a very weird thing where like, oh my God, the there were no deaths for a week. And then there was a bunch of deaths on the Monday. Yeah, that means there was one employee in the state who's responsible for getting all the deaths reported. And she went on vacation for a week and nobody took her place. I mean, seriously, do you guys not even think? Uh, there are alternative explanations. Some of them were very, very obvious when you actually think through how data get created. It's not like the angel of data comes down and gives you pristine data on a platter. And that's the thing is people who work with real data all the time know it needs to be cleaned. And there's some weird stuff in there. You need, And it's not by accident. That's the other thing. It's not like there's a little data demon that just randomly messes up your data. Usually there's a reason you see a messed up data point, and that's the case with this genomics data. So anyway, <laughs> that's all to say the genomics people and specifically the journal people know that this is a problem. The journal people should be responsible for doing data checks. I don't think it should be on the researchers. I think it should be on the editors of the journals to do the data file checks. They know this is a problem. These are specialty, and this is genomics specialty journals, should know this. there's a problem and should do data checks of the files that are uploaded on their articles. I mean, do they care? Do they care about the quality of the research that is posted on their journals, that is published with their journals? It's like, do they even under, do they even care about academic integrity? One of the reasons that the actuarial profession has a reputation for integrity, the only reason is because we have promulgated these standards and if you step a toe out of line, okay, yes, I do scare um, students with this. Okay, we're not really necessarily all that, you know, crack in the whip and we're going to beat you to death if you screw up here. There are mistakes that does happen. However, there is a discipline here. I mean, it's like the military. No, but there is a discipline here and you learn to follow that discipline. If you are too sloppy, this really is not, the actual profession is not for you. If you are not a detail-oriented person, no, I'm sorry, it is not for you. Not all professions are for all people. Okay, this, you're going to be very unhappy if you cannot deal with a lot of quantitative detail. This is like accountants. If you do not like dealing with numbers and money, stay out of accountancy. If you don't like dealing with medical stuff and gooey bits, maybe stay out of medicine. People need to be told not every profession is appropriate for every person, every individual. So, you know, it's... Sometimes people are just given bad advice. So I am saying, yes, the kinds of things that actuaries do is not, this is part of the reason the actuaries paid, are paid a lot of money is because, I'm sorry, it is not an attractive profession to a lot of people. They really, this stuff makes them itchy. I understand that, okay? Uh, it is not for all people. However, there 
is a group of weirdos that really enjoy this stuff. And you can tell I am really into this stuff. Um, now, I mean, and there are, there are people in the profession who uh, are not as into it as I am. That's okay. But you don't want to be an actuary and be miserable in the profession, okay? There's enough people who enjoy it enough uh, who, you know, we've, that's, it's okay. It's okay. There's other things to do. Um, but people who are dealing with data, you know, have some standards, maybe not to the level of actuaries, but you will look like an idiot if you're going to be sloppy. You know, have, have at least some basic data checks. And what's great, and this is what Ed Cruz was getting at, is you can automate this stuff. You don't have to do it. I have tools I've built to do checks of certain things for certain kinds of errors that I know pop up frequently. And I have certain kinds of practices that prevent certain kinds of problems. And you know what? This has gone on far too long. So there is going to be a spreadsheet shenanigans part two that's about GE Financial. So sorry, this was only about ASOP 23. ASOP 56 on modeling will have to be next time. Um, but if you are an actuary, hopefully you were able to uh, do at least, you know, 0.5 of a CE credit if you're a U.S. actuary, you know, doing it one time speed. Um, because, and if you're not an actuary and if you work with data, I am just saying, get some standards. It doesn't have to be to the level of actuarial precision. And I'm just letting you know, we are actually not accountants. So we don't need things to foot to the penny necessarily. We're working with probabilistic models most of the time. And when I've talked, you know, when I was in financial reporting at one point and I had a direct report who was getting a little distressed at one of the numbers coming out on one of our reinsurance treaties. And I was telling her, you know, at this point in the reporting cycle, anything that is a disparity of less than a million dollars, I don't want to hear about because really it's not going to make a big difference in the quarterly financials. And that's because the quarterly financials were on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars. So I didn't care about something that was going to be less than 0.1% of the financials. So no, I don't care. And now if it was something that was tens of millions, uh, I definitely did care. But it 0.1%, no, I don't need it to foot to that level. So this is some of the stuff that we think about. It's balanced. I am not needing everything to match to the very, 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 you know, this is, this is not working with protons kind of thing. This is, I have something that already is inherently probabilistic, but I need to know that things that are grossly weird are handled. I cannot have um, parameters. So, I mean, I can keep going back to COVID. I don't have to keep going back to COVID, um, but there was so much bad data practice that was uncovered in 2020. And I could not believe in 2023, so, you know, this is past year three of COVID, some of these bad data practices continuing. And yes, we have it with the genomics. And this was one of the complaints that this author and her team have is like, we told you people and you people are still doing this crap. Well, I got started on spreadsheet risks back in 2007. I was like right out of the gate. Um, in 2007, the moment I got my fellowship, uh, FSA, so Fellow of Society of Actuaries, I started writing, and you don't have to wait, by the way, if you're, if you're a member of the SOA, you don't even have to be a member of the SOA. I'm sorry. If you're taking exams from the SOA, you do not have to wait until you have an actuarial credential to write articles for them. 
If you don't know how to get started, you can email me, marypat.campbell at gmail.com. I will hook you up of places you can write for Actuary of the Future. That's a great place to start, but also Stepping Stone. And we have the Emerging Topics community. There are so many places to write. Um, so I wrote for the precursor to the Emerging Topics community. It was compact for the technology section, and I was writing about spreadsheet risk. Back, and I am sorry, I'm going to look. So the, it was back, it got, I wrote it in 2007. It was published in January, 2008 to air as human to correct divine. And it was about spreadsheet errors. And I just went from there and this is since 2008. It's been 15 years over 15 years talking about spreadsheet errors. And of course I'm still dealing with this. And people are now talking about AI embedded in spreadsheets. And I'm like, holy, holy moly. I need, I'm going to call on Aquinas here. I'm actually going to call on St. Matthew. He was, <laughs> he was an accountant. He was a tax collector. Actually, I think Mark was the accountant and uh, Matthew was the tax collector. Um, call on their help. <laughs> like, great. This is going to be another source of error in the spreadsheets. And it doesn't matter if it's Excel or Google Sheets or whatever people are using. If you don't take seriously that there may be errors and there probably are errors in your spreadsheets and that you have to actively look for them, whether it's your data, whether it's in the logic, your formulas of the spreadsheets yourself themselves, you absolutely will start generating errors because you're not looking for them. And if you don't understand, if you do not understand that logic, people make errors and the people who make the worst errors tend to be the smartest people who have the most arrogance about their modeling, about their expertise, et cetera, et cetera, because they don't look for their errors because they don't expect that they're, they'll be wrong. Nate Silver. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, I'm not totally kidding. But there is a lot of people, they don't find errors because they do not look for them. And so going back to the fraud that was in Daniel Ariely's and Francesca Gino's research, I can totally believe that they had nothing directly to do with the fraud and the data of their research. But what I do also believe is they didn't look for fraud or errors in the data that was handed to them. They didn't know to look for weird stuff in their data and to be suspicious of what they were looking at because they didn't find the fraud. And for all I know, it was a single research assistant that really perpetrated this on them and other researchers. This person, whoever it happens to be, and it could be more than one person, of course, they saw that they got success by giving the correlations that the lead, the senior researchers wanted to see. And the senior researchers never thought, never looked at what was underlying or never thought to question because it's high trust. Okay. Well, we actuaries are a very suspicious bunch, but it's not just that we know to do checks of various things and know that there can be problems. It doesn't need to be outright fraud, but we do have to question our results. We have to question our original data. We have to question our models and we have to think of how things go wrong. Yes, this does not make us very popular in many respects. Um, however, <laughs> You know, uh, problems can be there. And if you want to prevent problems, you have to look for them. That's part of the risk management process. You have to have some kind of detection system there too. And spreadsheets are just one part of it. So genomics people and specifically genomics. And, and part of the problem is no one's taking responsibility for this. So genomics journals specifically you people need to take responsibility for what is published on your journals specifically the data sets and if you can get some data 
specialist to, um, you know, hire someone who can do the data reviews for you, then, you know, maybe you guys can clean up your problem in genomics. So that is my unsolicited advice that you're not going to hear. But the this researcher, let's look at what she had to say. So this is what she says. Although gene name errors may seem like small fry in the grand scheme of scientific data analysis, they are a symptom of broader issues like over-reliance on spreadsheets and lack of consensus on how large genomic data sets should be reviewed and disseminated. These issues need to be addressed to improve the reliability of genomics research. And I'm sorry, it wasn't just her, it's also Mark Zeman. Somandri Abesoria is a second year PhD student at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. And Mark Zeman is head of the bioinformatics team at the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. These were the people writing this blog post. So I can understand the second year PhD student cannot provide any you know, guidance or advice. But Mark Seaman definitely could. Uh, they mentioned that affected articles were in Nature Communications, PLOS 1, Scientific Reports, BMC Genomics, PLOS Genetics, and OncoTarget, and with at least 100 affected publications each. They also said, clearly journals need to produce guidelines about how to filter for and address gene name errors that can affect data reproducibility. Um, so I will provide advice since they who actually work in the field didn't. I would advise BMC Genomics, POS Genetics, um, maybe OncoTarget. I, I would advise specific genomics journals to not only provide guidelines and practical advice of how to filter for and do data validation and that kind of thing, I advise those journals to take responsibility for doing the data checks as part of their editorial process. And it can be automated. They can say, we've counted this number of genes or we have detected this number of dates. Are there supposed to be dates in here? Are there supposed to be decimal numerals in your file? And if not, kick it back to the researchers and have them repair the file. That's it. It's very simple. There can be a very simple dat data validation step for posting the data to the journals, and that can clean up a lot of the problem. That is my advice. And that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. So next time, I'll talk about the GE Financial Long-Term Care Insurance spreadsheet shenanigans. That will be part two, and that will involve ASOP 56 modeling, but also some other ASOPs as well. Uh, <laughs> talk to y'all later.